This morning we are continuing our series. We've been in the book of Ephesians, and I love, uh, I love the the entire kind of section in the New Testament where Paul has his uh, letters: Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I love, uh, I love that because there's so much practical that it brings in there. And so today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter four together. I decided to preach from my largest Bible that I could possibly find. Um, so here you go. It's nice and heavy, and it's color coded and everything. It's actually kind of cool. Um, but would you guys be willing to stand with me while I read uh, the... the it's, oh my gracious. This is awful. <laughs> I don't know what's going on today. All right. Let's try this one more time. I'm just going to have it dangle in front of me and open up my Bible again. Uh, it's just six verses, even though that just doubled the amount of time with me having to mess with my microphone. Uh, verses one through six. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity, the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you have called us uh, to a life higher than what we had been called to on our own. Uh, So God, I pray as we look at this word, I pray that we would be people uh, that would exemplify uh, the words that Paul gave in Scripture, that we'd be people of humility and gentleness, that we'd be people of patience, and that we'd be people of peace. So God, bless the words, bless the speaker, bless the hearer, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Beyond just being comfortable in the warmth, um, Jesus actually sat when he taught. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Christ-likeness today. And this is my kind of banal effort of trying to be Christ-like in how I teach. So I appreciate you uh, humoring me in that. Plus, um, I know some of you guys get really, like, motion sick easily. And so this is really for you because I move when I talk. And I know there's not many of you, but it's for the one or two of you that just get really seasick as I move. Um, and so this is, this is selfless, really. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, what am I getting myself into? All right, um, this, this chapter uh, begins kind of a new section in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters uh, of the letter are kind of dealing in the theoretical. It's explaining the mystery of God's eternal purpose for the world uh, as it's been working out in history. Paul gives us a lot of theory. Uh, he kind of helps us pray through um, understanding how this works. But then he begins in, ver- in chapter 4 um, with dealing with the practical of how do we set this up? How do we put this into actual practice? Um, and but, but before we get too far into that, I want to um, kind of catch everybody up, just in case you've missed, um, to, to just to answer the question, what is that calling um, that Paul is talking about? What is he? What are we even looking at today? Why are we wanting to be these people of humility and gentleness, of patience um, and peace? Well, going back to, to chapter 1, we see that, that our calling is to be people who are blameless and holy. We need to be striving to be like Jesus. We need to be uh, living so that God can receive glory. In, in chapter 2, we also saw um, that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared for us to do. 
Uh, but ultimately, going back to chapter 1, verse 10, God's plan for the world and, and for us is that all things would be brought together under one heading in unity. So that's the essential call of God for his church, is to be bound together in unity under him. Now, shockingly, there are many roadblocks that stand in the way uh, of that. I'm sure you're just as shocked as I was when I thought about it. Uh, Because people... Uh, come together into the church from varying backgrounds. They have different worldviews and beliefs and understandings. And, and this is as true today as it was from the get-go. If you really think about the, the origins of the church, uh, just think about Jewish believers for a second. They may have all come from the same country, but they had different walks of life and different educational uh, opportunities and different beliefs and mindsets. Uh, Peter was on one end where he was... Um, deemed unworthy of higher education, so he was, I guess to a sense, doomed to be a fisherman, somebody that was of low social status. Um, Matthew was kind of this weird, uh, in this weird place where he was a Jew, but he worked for the Romans, and so uh, people would look really down on him, but he was still, in his heart, Jewish. And then you had somebody like Paul who was a Pharisee, and so he'd been afforded all the educational and social opportunities available at the time. And so all three of these men came under that umbrella of following Jesus. But even though they were from the same culture, they had all of these different worldviews and experiences that could have created a lot of disharmony and disunity. In fact, there were some issues that happened specifically between Peter and Paul as they tried to figure out how do we as a church of so many different people, how do we unite together? And that's before you even add the complication of Gentile believers, because Greeks and and Romans, they had no foundation of the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. Uh, They had no routines or rituals that they followed. In fact, they really had very little knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures like the Jews would have. And they would have still, even those that followed Jesus, and it's true today, we hold that in high regard. We consider the Old Testament scripture but the Greeks would have had no knowledge. So naturally, there was a lot of division, a lot of infighting, uh, and we're going to touch a little bit on, more on some of that infighting uh, a little later. But these, these odds started to stack up against the church, and that really threatened to tear the church apart. And, and the, the frustration and the animosity that was developing was not lost on Paul. In fact, Paul talks about building unity in a lot of his books. Uh, He does it in Ephesians. He talks about it in Colossians that we heard earlier. Talks about it in Philippians. About the, the desperate need for unity within the church. And if you have joined with Christ, he calls us to live as family. Uh, now has anyone here, did anyone here get raised in a dysfunctional kind of family? Anyone here just willing to admit, yeah, yeah, that was, that was me. I see Franklin. I see that hand. (laughs) Well, um, I told first service that I would be nice and say that I was, I was raised in like a really well-functioning, polite home with very little strife, but my mother is here and what good is a parent without allowing them to be fodder for your sermon? So my family may have been slightly, actually it's not really on her yet. Uh, this is on like, I grew up, I'm the oldest of six kids, which I used to believe was a large family. Hi Tracy. Uh, Tracy has triple the number of children that 
my family did. Uh, and so now I, I, I like, you know, my family, I grew up in a church of like seven or 800 and we were one of the largest families in that church. And my family's kind of small in this church. It's kind of amazing. I really enjoy it. At very least we're kind of normal sized. So thank you for setting that bar so high. I love you for that. Um, I, I didn't actually mean to get off on a tangent about that, but, uh, anyways, I love you. You guys are amazing. Um, but if you've, if you've grown up, and I mean, most of us had moments of dysfunction where um, we would fight over things, and, and that often centered around things like the television for us. Uh, we didn't really have, like, cable or anything, but it was all about, like, what did we want to watch? And I'm, how, Ethan, how old are you? I'm 15 years older than you, I think. I'm 30, and you just turned 15, right? Okay, cool. My brother Ethan is here. He's my youngest brother. Um, so we'd have, like, Ethan as, like, a four-year-old, and I'd be around, like, coming home from college at 19. I'd didn't want to watch like whatever it is that Ethan used to watch at four years old. Uh, so naturally, a lot of that fighting came out. And, and you've probably been there. You've fought over certain things, whether it's you know the games that you wanted to play, the food that you wanted to eat, maybe the shows, the movies that you wanted to watch. Um, and and that's, that's okay unless your family becomes known for that dysfunction. And, and, and if you become known for that dysfunction, then things start to kind of get out of whack if that is how you are defined. And the, the same is true in a, in a church family because sadly there are far too many churches that are known for their dysfunction. They're, they're known, instead of for their love, they're known for their hate. They're, instead of their faith, they're known for their fighting. Instead of Instead of their, their unity, they're known for their disunity and their division. Uh, Paul describes the, the unique workings of the church in the way that it should be in 1 Corinthians 12 as, as a body. And he, he uses this concept of a unified diversity. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And a lot of times when we think about unity, we, we seek unity by seeking sameness or agreement. And, and this is only natural. We, especially in the culture that we live in with the internet and Facebook, it's really probably easier than ever to seek out like-minded people. And that's not entirely a bad thing, but we can get so focused on cutting out anybody that disagrees with us and only focusing on those that, that have the same, uh, worship style and the same Bible choice and the same politics and the same, I mean, you, you list it and you could go on Facebook and probably put in all of those things and find exactly the kind of people you should be around around. And, and that's so easy. And it's so like, it's so less complicated when you're only dealing with people that are just like you, but you know, it would be really boring if the church was all just like me. I mean, the world would be awful if it was full of guys like me. I like myself. Like I don't, I don't struggle overly with like self-esteem issues. I think I'm okay guy, but it would really not be great if it was just me and a bunch of guys that looked and acted all just like me. And in the kingdom of God, unity is, is not brought about by, by making sure that we all fall in line, doing the same things the same way all the time. Unity is, is both created and maintained by each person's faithfulness to his or her unique calling of God and by the body being willing to invest in and sometimes put up with each other in that calling. Now, I, it was an interesting week for me. I did some research. Um, I heard a couple weeks ago um, 
a, a uh, the metaphor because the the body metaphor I really like, but sometimes the body can be deceptively simple. Uh, but I heard somebody refer to the body of Christ as a car motor. Now, John knows that I know very little about cars because I've brought my car to him several times and had to be the, the guy that, I don't know if anyone here doesn't know cars, the guy that has to describe the sound his car is making rather than what's the problem. It's like it's chunka, 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 chunka. And it's like, I don't know what that is. I don't even know where that is. But fix it. And so for me, if you, if you look under the hood, for me, I look in, and most of the time it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's an engine in there, and um, that's where the windshield wiper fluid goes. And that's kind of it. Um, I guess that's the downside of, you know, I don't have any men really in my family on either side of my family that worked with cars. And so I brought, we brought to a mechanic. And so I can build a computer for you, but I couldn't, I could change the oil now, uh, I think. Don't test me on that. Uh, but th- So this week, I, I, I read this, and I was like, that's an interesting metaphor. I wonder if there's more to it. And so I kind of decided, I want to learn how a car motor works. And so in, in first service, I was, I was super nervous because I was like, I've got a lot of information that I think is right, but it's been so crazy busy, I haven't been able to sit down with John and make sure like, to proof text this, uh, or like Jason, or any of you guys. I mean, there's a lot of farmers here that know what's up. Uh, but I was given the green light by several people in the church after first service. So I think my information is correct, John. You'd be very proud of me. (laughs) But when you consider um, just, it's amazed. I actually am even more amazed by this metaphor when you consider all that has to happen within a motor uh, for it to run. Um, You've got the the pistons that are sliding up and down in cylinders. (laughs) I'm kind of making eye contact with John over here. Uh, Rotating the crankshaft. Uh, You've got camshafts that that turn, causing valves to go up and down, opening and closing their ports to allow fuel to enter and exhaust to escape. Um, All of these things, gears are turning, explosions are happening, things are all going on, sometimes in seeming contradiction to one another. And it's all happening with, with pinpoint accuracy to make sure that this raw fuel is being turned into horsepower. And if one thing goes wrong, as I learned the hard way when my, uh, when my engine exploded, basically, in my last car, is if it doesn't all work together in the right way, something is going to go wrong. But out of its diversity, when it works together in the way that it should, it's a beautiful thing. I love the fact that we can drive a vehicle around. And when you consider the, the intricacies and the deep intricacies that come from a vehicle it sometimes seems like that's the intricacies that have to happen within a church in order for us to be united together, for us to be living in unity together. And so for, for us, Paul gives us three specific necessities for proper operation within the church. And, and these instructions are simple yet profound, and they lay the foundation for a church that glorifies God and honors him. So I want to spend some time this morning looking at these necessities and, and how they influence and impact the unity of the church. And that first necessity this morning, which is in your handout, um, is complete humility and gentleness. Complete humility and gentleness. Uh, so using the, the metaphor of the car, um, I would say humility, humility and gentleness seems to me to be like oil. Uh, oil is used to reduce friction caused by rubbing of moving parts against one another. And without it, friction would become destructive by wearing away the surface of the part producing heat. And at times, 
uh, in time, these negative influences would cause the engine to fail and the, uh, the part to fail and the engine to break down. Uh, so the oil is there um, to, to make sure that there is a, a thin layer between these parts, preventing them from coming in full contact with one another. So surface wear is reduced and the function of the motor is able to continue uh, in relative harmony. Uh, ask, I've seen friends of mine that have struggled um, when they've found out what happens uh, when your car has no oil in it and you run it without it. <clears throat> Franklin. <clears throat> uh, twice. <clears throat> uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I told him this was happening. So, uh, Gentleness and humility work much the same way in the life of the church. It allows fellow believers to move in, in differing directions and differing ways without it creating undue friction amongst its believers. If your actions and your attitudes are buffered by gentleness, our contact with one another becomes much less harmful. And if our egos are bathed in humility, we will be much less likely to become overheated with frustration. Uh, one of the biggest problems in the church today is kind of the opposite of humility. I'd call it arrogance. And, and we flat out think we know it all and, and understand it all. And we, we approach our disagreements and our debates and our arguments in that way. And it impacts greatly how we interact with those within the church and those outside the church. Because we believe that we, not only are we right, but we're the only ones that could possibly be right. And I'm not talking about the, the absolutes that we all agree on within the church. There are certain things that we know to be true because that is very clear. But there's a lot, believe it or not, in Scripture that is relatively ambiguous. But we decide somewhere along the lines that the way that we've interpreted Scripture must be the only way. And if you look around at the sheer, just in America, the sheer volume of divisions within denominations, you'll see how true this really is. Because these unimportant things we elevate to become more and more important than even, I think, Scripture and God would ever allow us to, uh, to do that. Um, a really good example, in my mind, is creation. I believe God created the world. That's what scripture says. How did it all happen after God said happen, after God said go? That's open for some interpretation. It's not overly clear. Yeah, it says day in Genesis 1, but that in Hebrew isn't overly clear. So yeah, we can agree, and I think pretty much everyone in this room would agree, God created the world. But I'm not so arrogant to say the seven literal days is the only way that you could possibly interpret that. And if you interpret it any other way, you were discounting scripture. But so many of us have that attitude. And some of you may even be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that is the only way. I mean, Ken Ham says it's the only way. But believe it or not, I mean, I have a lot of respect for answers in Genesis. And, and that is entirely possible that that's the only way. But we don't know that. And that's an excellent example of how we need to temper our understandings. Because believe it or not, we, we, we like to believe. I think everyone here has strongly held deep-seated convictions. And we'd like to believe that our, our, all of our beliefs are based solely on Scripture. Martin Luther used the term sola scriptura, which is Latin meaning from Scripture alone. But the reality is, is that's not an actual thing. 
that, that you understand the Bible wasn't written in English and it wasn't written in our modern culture, much less in an American, from an American perspective. So before we can even read this, somebody else who knows a lot more than I do had to read Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek to get me this. So right away, there's some interpretation going on, which is why I always recommend, don't just use one uh, translation because there is the, the, uh, the potential for human error in the translation process. We believe that scripture is inerrant in its original form because that's how God gave it to us. But this is faithful as much as we can be. So the New International Version is what I'm using right now. Use different ones. Look at how does the NIV put this? How does the English Standard Version or even the KJV, how does this work? How How are they interpreting the original? And so we always take that. And then we take the English and we still have to take the cultural understanding and say, this was written to people 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. How do I apply this today? So there's always interpretation that goes on. There is no such thing as just reading it and taking it at face value because you always have to interpret something. Even if your parent, if you remember when you're you know, kids and your parent tells you to do something, you still have to interpret exactly what did my mother say when she said X, Y, and Z. Like, how exactly am I supposed to interpret and put that into action? There's always interpretation that goes on. And the reality is that as humans, sometimes we're really, really bad at that. And sometimes we do a poor job. And sometimes we hold on to beliefs that aren't actually scriptural. Has anyone here ever changed their mind about how they understand something from scripture? Like maybe you've, you've thought that this is, this is explicitly what scripture says. And the more you look at it, you're like, no, that's not really what it says, is it? And, and, it ha- it's happened to me. It's happened to me in the last couple of years where I've held something to be true and realized that was more my opinion than God's opinion. The problem, and the Wesleyans do this, actually have done this a lot because we used to really be um, strongly against any form of dancing because that was super sinful. Well, we don't believe that anymore. At least we don't, most of us don't believe that anymore. Um, we also used to, we, we still don't believe in gambling or we believe in it, but we don't believe we should do it. Um, but we, allow, we don't believe that playing cards are inherently evil. Um, we, we don't believe that going to movies in and of itself is a sin. Now there's some movies that you really need to avoid, but these acts are not in and of themselves sinful. We have come kind of a 180 on some of these things. Now, does that make our our forefathers or even our younger versions of ourselves sinful? Well, no. Does it make them wrong? Yeah. And that's okay. You're allowed to be wrong, but we've got to allow that humility to say there's a world where I could be wrong. Mom, there have been times that you've fallen into that trap in my life, has there not? There have been times where you've held some pretty deeply held and very, very, very serious convictions that you believed with all of your heart, but it was just a Coldplay CD. It's okay. Coldplay is not the devil. And it wasn't even me. Now, that, I love my mother. Like I said, fodder. She's there. She's done it all my life. You know, I... There are things that we believe that we come to the realization that public school wasn't the devil and I was allowed to hang out with girls and that doesn't mean I was going to date them all. Those were two like big, those were hills I was worth willing to, I was willing to die on at like 14. So kids, sometimes it's not worth dying on those hills. That's the other half of this. But there came a point 
were mom realized and and I've realized and many of you realized that I am just flat out wrong. I was wrong. So the question is, is what happens as a result of that? What happens when you have so arrogantly and condescendingly defended something that you find out, oh great, I was wrong there. I, I don't know what that fallout is. It's different for different people. But instead of arrogantly putting others down, like I've seen us do and I've done myself, when we disagree, and trust me, if you haven't witnessed the old earth versus new earth creation put downs, it is awful. It is, it is not of God. And I'll, I'll check yourself if you, fall, you find yourself falling into that, because I've done that. I've been there, and it is not pretty, and it is not of God. We, we put each other and tear each other down for poor theology or poor understanding. We, we claim that somebody's too liberal or too conservative or they're, they're too radical or not radical enough. Uh, we, we seek to dominate the way that people understand things instead of looking out for them because humility is not something that comes natural. Humility is not a natural thing for people to have. And that's something that we share with the readers of Paul's letter. They, the, the Greek and Romans, which were the primary, it was a Gentile letter. Um, the Greek and Romans, when you were humble, you were defeated. You were conquered. You were not a conqueror. I mean, Rome was the conqueror of worlds. So let those under them be the humble ones. Because humility isn't about power, and it isn't about influence, and it isn't what the church is about, power or influence. Humility is about serving others, and it's about putting their needs and interests above our own. It's considering others as more important than our own selfish pride and our own selfish desires. It understands that it's more important to serve somebody than to intellectually defeat them. Philippians 2, and it's going to be on the screen behind me, 2, 3 through 8, reminds us, in humility, value each other above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset of Christ, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're called to be like Jesus, to model our lives after Jesus. And so arrogance in the body of Christ is very much at odds with the example that Jesus gave, a life lived defined by humble sacrifice. And unity within the body is reliant on our willingness to mirror that attitude. It's serving and showing love even to those who disagree with us, even to those that live differently than us. Even when we want to scream at them instead of loving them, it's saying, I will choose to look, at, look out for them and to place myself below them and serve them instead of trying to prove them wrong. But Paul doesn't stop there. The second necessity of a church united is patience. Patience. And that is one I struggle with. Uh, I don't know about you. I know some of you do, but I know you, some of you better than others. 
Um, now, in, in my, in my uh, research this week, one of the things I came across is the idea of the, the term tolerance in, in terms of engineering and, and motors. Um, and this idea of tolerance is that it gives the motor the potential to cope with, with changes in, in certain elements of its surrounding and remain functioning. It's, it's designed where it's not just tight like when you screw something in, uh, but there's, there's some freedom there to move so that it's not going to seize up within each other. It allows it to continue to work even when uh, something might change small. Obviously, there's certain limits within engineering, but it allows it when some things change or things aren't going according to plan, it gives it the hope and the, the potential to continue to function. And within the church, we've got this same kind of necessity. Patience, I would say, is the tolerance of relationships. It allows for a certain amount of space around an individual so they can be free to grow and move in a way that God has allowed them to. Freedom within the body of Christ is essential because we all grow at our own pace. And if you've ever been a parent, and I don't know why you'd want your kid to grow faster than somebody else, but there's very little that you can do to force your child to grow, you know, aside from feeding them. You should probably feed your kids. But there's very little you can do to impact somebody else's growth. You can really impact your own growth far greater. And in, in, in a spiritual sense, it can be super frustrating when you are committed to growing spiritually and you make decisions and choices and you, you change things in your attitude and your actions and you grow closer to God. But it can be super frustrating when the people around you aren't as committed as you are to your faith. And, and as you press forward, it can become even more so because your focus stops being on your own walk and you start to notice somebody else's walk tripping up a little bit. And, and the, the point there, and to me, it's, it is frustrating because sometimes I have these aha moments and I, I, I get it and I understand it. And I want everyone else to understand it, but you know what? Sometimes it takes time and people don't always have the, uh, uh, the aha moment the same way that I do. Believe it or not, again, we're different. And it could be very easy for me to start getting frustrated with you because you don't get it and you don't understand it the same way I do. But instead of, of allowing that aggravation to come out as disdain for others, God is calling us to be tolerant of one another because that's the kind of grace that he has given us. He's given us the grace to grow at our own pace and in our own way, stretching us in ways that are unique rather than forcing us to all be in conformity and uniformity to one another. If we don't have the, the freedom, and we're not talking about tolerance as far as saying that everything is okay. That's not the kind of tolerance we're talking about. Sometimes these words have been twisted uh, to mean things that we don't, that they were never intended. But tolerance is saying that I don't necessarily know your story, and you don't necessarily know mine. And I don't necessarily know where you're at. And you may, I may see something in your life that you're like, you know, you probably need to fix that. But I don't know what God is dealing with in your life and in your heart. And far be it for me to assume that I know better than God. So this, this idea of patience and tolerance is saying that I'm going to let God be God and trust the Holy Spirit to work on your life 
and live, number one, live my own life as best I can with his strength to live out my calling and give you the grace that I have been given. Remember the words of Paul to the Colossians that we read earlier. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Patience is critical for unity and growth within the body of Christ because if without patience, we will push others away rather than pull them in. And finally this morning, our last uh, command that Paul gives us is to be people of peace. We are to pursue peacefulness. And I would say peacefulness could be described as the coolant of the church. Uh, A byproduct of a motor's engine is heat. It's created by friction and by the fact that there are little explosions that go on in the motor. And if nothing were done to remove the heat, everything would just overheat and and it would destroy lubricants and metal within the engine itself. And it would just, it would break down. Uh, So to to counter this, most cars use a liquid coolant that channels through the motor and it it absorbs the heat and the heat or the, the liquid go to the radiator to allow the heat to radiate out. And it keeps going with this cycle to keep the, the motor cool and make sure it doesn't overheat and destroy the engine. And when you think about the church, it's kind of a similar way. Naturally, when you get all of these diverse people together with opinions and beliefs and experiences and cultures that make up the church, naturally there's going to be heat when we are in close contact with one another, when we are living life together. And our culture kind of practically promotes conflict these days. I mean, if you look on Facebook, there is no middle ground anymore. It's all extreme. Everything in our life has to be, are you for me or are you against me? Which kind of comes back to the humility thing that we actually require that of people. But the, this, this culture of, 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 of conflict and fighting uh, was not new. Again, there is really nothing new under the sun. Um, that's something else from scripture. But that's been something that happened from day one. We talked earlier about how um, Gentiles and, and Jews were coming together and they were trying to worship together, but there was some real issues. Well, one major disagreement uh, that they had was regarding circumcision. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. He taught in synagogues and the temple. He followed the law. Uh, well, according to him and not the Pharisees, but that's another time. Uh, his early followers were Jewish too. And so to them, to be followers of Christ meant that you were followers of the Hebrew scriptures, which therefore meant you, Jew- you were Jewish. So to them, circumcision was absolutely necessary because that was the way that you were, uh, that you were part of the covenant of the Jewish people. Well, when Gentiles started coming to Christ, that presented a problem because that was not exactly a small thing to ask of a full-grown individual when this was a world that was before anesthesia. So naturally, this became an issue. It would become an issue today if that was a, if that was a requirement. In Acts 15, um, this really comes to a head. And in Acts 15, they, they convene what they call, it's become called at least, the Jerusalem Council, in which uh, Pharisees from within the body of Christ, which does that not seem like an oxymoron to you, uh, but Pharisees within the body of Christ argued that in order for the body to be united, Gentiles had to come in line with Jewish believers in an anatomical sense. 
And, and as the apostles, they, they did not take this lightly, and they convened, and the apostles and other believers considered, how should we respond to this? This is clearly crucial to many believers. But what does this mean for us? What do we need to do with this? And is it worth dividing the church over? Because don't under, misunderstand this. This would have divided the church. This would have probably irreputably damaged the church if they had come to a different decision. But here are the words of James from verse 19 of Acts 15 when he said, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and from meat of strangled animals and from blood. That was it. The Council of Jerusalem decided that instead of allowing conflict over circumcision, which was hugely and massively important to them, was not going to allow them to divide the church. They would focus instead on the absolutes that would draw them together. They would focus on the things that united rather than the things that divided. And in in the church today, how crucial is it in a world that we can be divided by so many secondary things, things that do not matter? In the end, in eternity, they don't matter. I know it seems super important now, and it seems like it's the end of the world if we don't agree, but they really, really don't matter in the long run. How important is it that we focus on the things that unite us? And, and I'm skipping ahead a slide here, but I'm going to come back there, Nicole. Um, Paul said in, in Ephesians 4, he reminds us there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That was the thing that they decided was worth fighting about. That was the thing that they were worth saying, listen, this is what's important. What wasn't important was whether or not you were circumcised. It wasn't important. How many things are we willing to, to forego peace for in order to be right, rather than seeking for it to not be difficult for those that are turning to God? And so when Paul tells us in Romans 14, therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification— I think he means it. I think he means that we need to be people committed to removing obstacles that we often place in front of others that bar them from entry into the kingdom of God and remove them. And again, allow the Holy Spirit to do what he's so much better than we are at doing because he knows the individuals and he understands their hearts and he knows what needs to be done. And we don't need to take on the role of God. We need to strive for peace and for edification of one another. That doesn't mean letting all sin go all the time. That's not what it is. But it's looking and saying, as a body, as a corporate body, what is important and what is not. And so often we end up focusing on the things that simply don't matter. Unless we allow, as the church, allow the free-flowing peace and presence of God in our lives and to direct our actions and attitudes, we will burn out as a church. But if we make our focus on the things that matter, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, 
when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. When we make that the focus, when we focus on our hope, when we focus on the the sacrifice of Jesus and how it has allowed us a second chance, when we focus on the free call of God on all of us to come and to enter into his family and to have communion with him. When we think about the fact that there is one God that loves us, even when we fall and we, we betray him and we reject him over and over again, that's when we're able to bring unity. That's when we can have this peace that Paul is talking about. So this morning, as we, as we close, I want to give you a challenge to you and to me, how will we be agents for unity within this congregation and within the body of Christ? That's how I'm going to leave it this morning. Um, Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, I thank you uh, that you care for us, that despite all of the reasons that we could give for why you should have just given up on us long ago, that you've decided to uh, to, to stick with it, and that your love knows no bounds. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a people defined by, by that criteria, by people whose love knows no bounds. And that's not because of us, that's because of you, because you change us, and you give us strength, and you're able to allow us to be even more than we could be. God, you have called us to a great calling, a, a calling that is defined by humility and gentleness, uh, a calling that is defined by patience, and a calling that is defined by peace. Lord, help us to be a family that is defined by those things. Lord, help us to be a church united so that we can present a, a beautiful truth to the world and not show a divided, a divided message, but one that is united Go ahead of us, we pray, and help us to be agents of unity in the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.